So last Sunday morning we had started Romans chapter 12 and we'd already discussed the relationship of chapter 12 with the rest of the Bible or the rest of the Romans, I'm sorry, how chapters 1 through 11 was very doctrinal and chapters 12 through 16 is very practical. We're applying the doctrine, the foundation of the doctrine, which Paul had laid out through chapters 1 through 11. That's very characteristic of Paul to do that. And I think it would go a long way towards our own Bible study if we understand that, how Paul will, will lay the foundation of doctrine, which when we can trust, one we can be assured in, and, and God's marvelous works, and then uh, there's a, there will be a point where he'll have a therefore. Therefore, knowing all these things, now we do this, or now we know this, or this is how we behave. And certainly, so that's what we see with chapter 12, it starts this, discourse of being very practical, having established the doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith and predestination and the duties, and this is what John Gill says, it's a real quick summary, I like this, he says, the doctrines concerning predestination, justification, having been established, the duties of religion are built upon them and enforced by them in this and the following chapters. The apostle first exhorts all the members of the church in common to regard to the worship of God in opposition to the things of the world, and then the officers of the church particularly, to the discharge of their duty, and next, all of them, both officers and members, to the performance of various duties respecting God, themselves, one another, and the men of this world. The duty of attending public worship is first mentioned signified by a presentation of their bodies to the Lord. Now, we had started uh, last week when we had looked at chapter 12, verses 1 through 21, and examined the multiple parts that this is divided into. Verses 1 and 2 are a consecration. This is us and the right worship which we give God in our alone time. This is how when we are alone, we are to approach God, worship God, present our bodies a living sacrifice. We're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so this is how, in verses 1 through 2, that you and I privately worship God. Then he goes on to talk about, okay, how do we publicly worship God? Verses 1 through 2 is consecration, being separated. And then in verses 3 through the remainder of the chapter, through 21, it's about teamwork. It's about the Lord's church. It's about how do we, we, we know how we are to act alone before God, but how do we act around others before God? And that's where he starts. And we're going to look at verse 3. He says, For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. 
So the first point we saw in verses 1 through 2 was a consecration. It was a private worship. And now in verse 3, he starts this humility. He starts the point of humility. Now what do we do when we come to the church? Once we've left our private study, our private worship in home, how do we interact with each other? Well, the first thing that he brings up is in humility, in verse 3, to not think more of yourselves than you ought to think. There is a problem in a lot of churches today, and this is at the core of the problem is pride. There's a, there's a proudfulness of people that are in the Lord's churches, and it causes strife. And humility is the solution. This humility here is what we are taught to be, to think soberly, and the tendency and what he says in verse 3 is a, we are to act according, at the very at the end of verse 3, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So the measure of faith are the gifts, the abilities, light, and knowledge that we have. And we need to understand that these gifts, abilities, light, and knowledge are not something we self-generate, but are given. They're given by God. And so Ephesians 4, 7 puts it this way, that we all have a measure of grace. So we have a measure of faith, which God has given us. That faith meaning the abilities, the knowledge, the light, the what you are to exercise as the gift that he has given you. But the tendency for us, the natural tendency for us is to exalt ourselves with what God has given us. And exalt ourselves to the point of wanting to take on the roles that God has not given you. You're one to overreach. You're one to overstep what God has given you. But that's what he says in verse 3. I mean, it gets to the very heart of the matter, doesn't it? To every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Well, what are we to think? We are to think God has given me a proportionate and measured amount of how I can contribute. And so I shouldn't think more of myself because I have, God has blessed me with something to do, knowledge, light, prophecy, but you know, whatever the gifts are. But we know that we are to esteem others, and that's what he says. Um, now this also means in verse 3, not to go about false humility. I don't know if you all ran into this before, but almost as bad as having no humility and all pride is having false humility. And they're obviously beating themselves up. And it's obvious to you God has given them a gift to exercise, and you, you appreciate the gift that God has given them. But rather than being content in that gift and rather than being confident and wanting to use that gift, hi, babies, to uh, pursue in the church or the kingdom of the Lord, they like, I'm nothing. They're just self-content. You know, they're always self-abasing themselves. Oh, you know what? I'm just a dumb hick from Richmond. You know, and like, obviously, you're not. Obviously, you just got up and taught the word of God beautifully, but how can you be a dumb hick from Richmond? And the God can't use me, I'm a, you know? And so there's a false humility. Uh, that comes along. That's almost just as unattractive, and that's almost, it, you know, it, it, you, you get into the danger. What is it about pride? Pride is look at me. 
Look at me. Look what I've done. Look, look how valuable I am to the continuance of what we all have here. What would you do without me? That's pride. Humility, or I mean, uh, false humility is almost asking for the same attention as pride is. Look at how awful I am. Look at how bad I am. Look at all the things that I can't do. You're drawing attention to yourself in both cases, and that we are not to do that. And so that's, I think, also is to not every man think more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly. That's aware. You're self-aware. Uh, uh, soberly, it means the opposite of inebriated. You're not inebriated. You, you, you know, you're not uh, cutting your own press clippings and posting them on your wall and, and look at me, look at me. Uh, that's not thinking soberly. That's, you're drunk with yourself. You're drunk that you got the own, your own attention and that's all you want is attention. Either way, false humility or pride. Uh, verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. Now, um, and then verse 5, I'm going to talk about verse 4 and 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. First of all, this is not teaching universal church. This is not teaching here, and I mean this with all love and patience, and my desire is for people to see the truth, that God bless them with the truth, of what is being taught here. Uh, what is being taught in verse 4 is Paul is comparing the membership which we have of one of the Lord's churches, a local visible assembly of baptized believers, he is comparing our membership and our attendance with our human body, with our own human body. And that's what he says, for as we have many members in one body, he's talking about the human body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one. So in verse 5, he is, he is using that example he gave in verse 4 for spiritual truth. Verse 5, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Now, there is a lot here, and I pray the Lord just blesses it just over and over and over that you see this. And it, it, this was a blessing to me when I saw this. What this means is that it does matter which church you go to on Sunday, on Wednesday. It can be a church that believes right down the same line that we do. It could be the best church in the world. And, I mean, it's a sister church. We love that church. But it's wrong for you to attend there if you're not a member there. Okay? Because... When we come together, what is the metaphor? What, what is Paul comparing our attendance in this body, this local baptized assembly, he's comparing it to our own bodies. Okay. First of all, uh, when you think of the Lord's church, this has helped me in, in so many ways. When, when I think of the Lord's church, I think of my own body. That there 
Each, my body has a ton of members, doesn't it? It's got my hands, it's got my arms, it's got my legs, it's got my eyes, it's got my ears. It has, so there's a lot of members, but it's still one body, right? And each one of my members has a different function. So my hand does this function, my nose does a function, my eyes does a function. So what happens if my eyes decide not to come to the assembling of my body? I can't see. And my hand's not going to be able to see. No one is going to be able to replace you. When God has brought you into the church, he's brought you to function as an office, as, as a member of the body. Now, when my right arm decides it doesn't want to assemble with the rest of my whole body, it just wants to do its own thing. Well, there's circumstances that come up. I mean, there's sickness, there's things. But if we're making a choice, hopefully this, this plays in your mind. Hopefully this passage plays in your mind. When it comes to making a choice, it does matter where you go. It does matter. We need to all attend and be present and counted for when the body joins so that way all the offices, all the functions of the body are there functioning the way God had designed to function. And that's what this means in verse 4 and 5. He says, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of Another, And that's the thing is, um, when I jam my finger and it hurts, my whole body hurts, doesn't it? And that is the thing is we are not only just members of Christ's body, which we are, local, visible, here, all together, because that's what a body does. It assembles all the same place and all at the same time, doesn't it? That's what it, my body does. Hopefully that's what your body does. <laughs> Hopefully you don't have to go to your drawer and get your arm out and then go over here and get your leg. Now you're always assembled together. And so when we have all of our offices, when we have all our members together, we are members one of another. Right? When, when my hand hurts, I hurt. When, when I when I'm going through sorrow, when you're going through sorrow, I go through sorrow. Yeah. When you're going through rejoicing, I go through rejoicing. Because we depend on each other. And so that makes attending even more. Um, think, think about this. It's taught in other places too. It's not me just taking this, these two verses and stretching it. It's taught in other places. 1 Corinthians 12 says, God hath tempered the body together. What body? He's talking about his church. God has tempered it together. We are not members of Metathorpe Baptist Church by accident or because it's the closest church to me. It, it could be a, an hour-long drive. But if God has put you, has led you to join one of his churches, he is, you are joining one of those churches as a member of the whole body. Yeah. And so that's God's doing. And so 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, 
in the body as he hath pleased. God has placed you in your church to function like a part of your own body. That's the truth that is being taught there. But now that we are together, now that we've learned humility, uh, we are to not think ourselves more than we should. God has measured out to each of us a measure of faith, the abilities, the knowledge, the light, the things. Um, then we are to assemble, and we know that there's different members that have different functions. In verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So now he's breaking down the, the various offices of the church. And one of the things that we see uh, immediately here, and this is going to be kind of the handout that I gave you. Sister Teresa, I don't, did everybody get a handout? I think so. Um, in verse 6, this, this will be a bit of a, a Bible study for us. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Now, that of faith, if you look in the Greek, they left out the word the. According to the faith. Faith being a subject, not a verb. This isn't a faith we exercise. This is the body of work which God has done. His revelation. Prophecy was either strong and very prominent in a time when God had revealed, and that's what this chart is, if you, if you look it up, as when Genesis began and then all the way through time, that's called God's revelation. Throughout God's revelation, there's been prophecy. There was a lot of prophecy at the beginning of the word of God. And as you get closer to revelation, as you get closer to, revela uh, to the end of God's revelation, there's less and less and less prophecy. And that's what we see. Today, we do not have prophets like they did in those days. That's not a gift which we have. Because in proportion to the faith once delivered to the saints, where are we on the timeline of God's revelation? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 1, it says that God in the past used the prophets, used everything to uh, relay his will, his revelation. But now in these last times, he has spoken to us by his son. And what did Jesus do? Jesus, when he left, he said, a comforter will come to you. And the New Testament writers, those that we have the New Testament, were inspired to write the words of Christ. Those things which Christ began to do and to teach, we have written. So God's revelation is finished. There's nothing new that God is saying that he's not already said. So if there's nothing new, then there, why is there prophecy? There's not. You, 
If there's nothing new, there's no prophecy. Because that's what prophecy was, was a revelation of something new. So um, that's, it, it's kind of tricky there because at the end of verse 6, they put a definite article, the. So whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of the faith. And, um, hold on, that, okay, I don't have that written down, but we, we know that, and actually if you look at your chart again, as scripture grows toward the end, the need for prophecy becomes less and less. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 10, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So, you know, and that is the thing. So many people will say, you know what, I'm just a simple person and I just read in here and, and, and I just take it for what it is where it's at. And so they believe that there's prophecy or they'll, they'll, believe, or they'll look at Pentecost and they won't understand how it fits in with the rest of the word of God. There is something called context. And as we study the word of God, let us put it in context. Is this something that I should be, ex should there be prophets running around? Should there be people speaking in tongues? Should there be this? Should, be, should there be that in God's churches today? Just because we saw it in God's churches in the book of Acts and in here, does that mean it is today? Is it for today? And then one of the things that you'll find yourself doing is once we're honest with those questions, how do I interpret this? We interpret it with context. And we see how God had fulfilled. Well, what was the purpose behind those gifts? What, what was the purpose behind speaking in tongues? There had to be a purpose. It just wasn't uh, chaos. God's a God of order. And there was a reason. God had given those gifts of prophecy and gifts of tongues and those types of gifts. Has that purpose been fulfilled since we have the complete sealed revelation of God? And so those are the type of questions that we need to ask ourselves when we read through here. Now, when he says, or the ministry, let us wait. Now here he's still talking about the gifts that are within the church assembly. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministry. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. Now, have you noticed these gifts haven't ceased? And did you notice that it was only in verse 6 that he, when he brought up prophecy, that's the only time he brought it up in proportion to the faith? As the revelation is sealed, so will the, any need for prophecy. Any need for prophecy will be complete. But these other gifts, he goes on in verse 7 through 8, they're not in proportion to prophecy, or they're not in proportion to revelation. These are full-time. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I like that with simplicity. What that simplicity means is when you are giving, you're giving it in a way that's easy to understand. Everybody understands why you're giving what you're giving. You're not giving it for something in return. You're not giving it for some complicated reason. It's not a quid pro quo. It's just you're giving. 
You're not giving because somebody gave to you. You're giving out of a simple heart. It's not complicated. You don't have to try to figure out their motive behind it. Uh, he that ruleth with diligence and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And I also, I also love that. When you show mercy with cheerfulness, you are not a reluctant forgiver. You're not a reluctant forgiver. Oh, I guess I'll have to forgive you if I want to be blessed. Well, I guess the only way that I can get over this is to forgive you, so I will. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> we forgive with cheerfulness. Cheerfulness. And so, in verse 9, he starts with love. Now, love, so we saw humility within the congregation, and now we have love in the congregation. Uh, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Now, this word dissimulation, dis means not. Simulation means false motions. So, it is not false motions. Dissimulation that we love with each other, it's not an emulation. It's not a false thing that we're doing. I love you. Let's, let's mean that when we say it. You know, it's very easy to say, and, and uh, you know, a lot of times, I mean, who doesn't say it without putting the thought behind it? We do ever so often, but probably, I don't know if, about you all, but, um, you know, I believe that we should say, I love you more. I love you. I love you. Whether it's your kid, whether it's your wife, whether it's people uh, in the church, just let people know you love them. And not only that, let's do it without false simulation, like a video game is a simulation. Let's do it authentically, genuinely. And let's get to the place that we ask ourselves, am I saying this genuinely? And how can I be genuine? and saying this. And then that's the place you want to be. You want to start judging what you yourself are saying. Where's, where's my heart behind what I'm saying? Um, what's the intention of me loving you? And then it'll be a blessing. And then you can say it with meaning, with saying it, and that abhor. That is a very interesting Greek word. Abhor means that it's something that is a horror to you. It's scary. It's like a horror movie. You're watching a, a horror movie, or you don't even have to watch a horror movie. You can be walking, a, you know, by yourself in the dark house and get scared. You know, there's something chasing you. I know I did as a kid. I don't know why they designed the house to have the light switch to the living room. Let's say the living room is this congregation, and my bedroom is up these steps, but the light switch is way down there to the living room. Mom say, turn off the lights. Oh, so I'd have to get on my tennis shoes and I knew I was like I can walk to the light and as soon as I flipped that light off whoop, and then I was gone like I ran as fast as I could through that living room to the stairs and then I didn't keep I, I, you know I didn't slow down once I got to the stairs because this is going to chase me up the stairs too whatever was chasing me and you know it, that is that sense that is that feeling he is saying, abhor that which is evil. Cleave unto that which is good. 
You know, the more that you cleave unto things which are good, the things of evil are going to scare you. They're going to be a horror show. They're going to be horrific thoughts. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going to run as fast as I can away from those things. And I love that verse 9 he uses, just a rich word there, that we leave those things, that we abhor those things, and to cleave to those things that are good. The more you cleave to that which is good, the more you will abhor that which is evil. It's, it's like water beaten up against a rock. If you're not cleaved unto the Lord, you're not cleaved to the things which are good, then the things which are evil are not going to be as sensitive to you. They're not going to shock you as much because you will be involved with those things in some little way or another. Uh, the best way to get through a horror film is to watch a bunch of horror films, right? So that's the same thing with evil. If, if The best way to get through evil is to just make your life unsensitive to evil. And then that's not what we're to do. We're to cleave unto those things which are good and having the right perspective of things that are evil. Um, and let me tell you, that's not always a fun place to be. Because you're going to find that your loved ones are doing things that you can't stand. That you can't be associated with. Because you've cleaved unto those things which are good. And now you see what they're doing as something you run from. And the more knowledge you have of that, was a Solomon, much wisdom brings much sorrow. The more wisdom we have of those things which are good, the more sorrow we're going to be in because we see the folly of those that we love. And, you know, I'm not going to go chasing a rabbit, but I do want to kind of tie that point up. When we do, when we are abhorring those things which are evil, we see that and we're disturbed by the things which our family members do. What's the next thing not to do? Be judgmental. Be legalistic. What you should do is have compassion. And understand that if it were not by the grace of God, there go I. But you also have been instructed and you learned how to how God has blessed your life was at the point where you got back into the, the word of God. You have a solution for them. They don't want to, most of the time they don't want to hear it because they don't think anything's wrong. But you understand sin. You understand you're a sinner. You understand that, you know, I used to be in that same situation therein. And, but Lord has rescued me from it to where now I have this feeling of nausea when you hear a cuss word, you know, whether it's on television or this or that, and that's just an example. Just, it shocks you until you want to step back. It, but they're unsensitized to it, and you know what it took the Lord to do to you to make you that way. It was saturation. Word of God, it was cleaving to that thing which was good. It's not that I'm better. Than anybody, So that's also the attitude we should have when dealing with others who are in sin, who have not, doesn't have the victory over the things in life, which you know the Lord can give them victory in. It, it's, it's by God's grace. 
And what we do is we pray. Um, and that is verse 10, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. What that means is continual devotion. Instant means all the time, all the time. Whether it's you're reading the word or whether it's the word in your heart, you're constantly uh, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and you're constantly in prayer. Uh, I, I know you all do that. I don't have to explain what that is. You know, uh, when I'm driving, I'm in prayer, but I don't close my eyes. Okay, so <laughs> you would think others do, though. Yeah, that's what I think other people are doing. I think they're closing their eyes, but, uh, but that's what that means is constantly, and it's a full-time thing. We, are, we have a full-time presence with God. Let's be in full-time uh, communication with him. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality, and that word is also entertaining strangers, being kind to strangers, loving strangers. And actually in Hebrews, it, the word hospitality is, is translated into English as entertaining strangers. And then verse 14, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind, one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Now, verse 17 through 21 starts to deal with uh, how we act as one of God's to the outside world. He did kind of overlap a little bit there, what we just read about bless them which persecute you. But verse 16 and verse 15 and 16 is certainly talking about those who we have fellowship with in the church. We're minding the same thing. We have unity of mind. We're not minding high things, but condescending, not in the negative way. If condescending doesn't mean, you know, it seems like we've interpreted the word again in here recently. Uh, condensation can be bad thing. It can be where you are coming at a, 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 a lofty uh, height of superiority. You're patronizing people. Think of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee was condescending in a negative way to the publican. Uh, Lord, I thank you for not making me like this guy. And what's he even doing here? So that's the attitude of condensation. A negative condensation, but he's not talking about that here in this verse. Um, con, uh, where am I? Uh, verse 16, he says, My not high things, but consent to men of low estate. That means to be relatable. Be sympathetic, empathetic. And literally, the words there remind us of one who, uh, and Jesus had taught about this, you choose to take the lower seat. And then it's better to choose to take the lower seat and ask to be come up than to choose to take the higher seat and ask to be <laughs> brought down. So when we condescend the men of low estate, we go to a low degree. Uh, like again, we tremble in fear and we thank God by his grace that I am not as evil as I could be. 
It's by his restraining grace, his restraining love. And when I come into a situation, I am not to think myself some lofty, superior, spiritual being. And all of you are just not as good as me or not as knowledgeable as me, not as committed as me and everything. I'm not to, to be that way. I'm to have a mind of low esteem, esteeming others better than ourselves. When you get a right grasp on grace, then that will be the mind that follows. How God has been so good. How God, I, and we don't know why. It's not anything that was it's deserved or earned in us. We don't know why, but we thank him. Thank you, Lord. And we, uh, you know, that's another thing. Is I could get up here and I could just land blast for the next 30 minutes everybody that does not believe in election and predestination. I can just punch you, punch them. And you know what the sad part is? Is people like it. People want to hear me up here slamming other people for ignorance. And when you, at the end of the day, what do I have that was not given to me? How could I slam anybody for ignorance when it was by God's grace he gave me knowledge? Amen. I preach God and God's grace and his power and his ability to show you the most beautiful words and tapestry of life and how enriched our hearts can be in assurance and knowledge. And we, when the more we understand grace, Lord, there's nothing good in me. People say I'm smart, but if I am, it's only because you've made me smart. People say that I can speak, and if I am, it's only because you can make me speak. And I see the sovereign grace, that's only because God has shown me sovereign grace. And who am I to get up here? And just punch people in the throat for not seeing. That's ridiculous. I see it. But what's sadder is when people rejoice in it. Hearing it. They rejoice in arrogancy. They rejoice in, in us talking about the ones who are lost in sin and sold under sin. And they're committing this and they're committing that. And they just love to hear about how everything's wrong. But what they need to hear is how God, God is by his mercy. It's not of him who willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's not about me bashing anybody. I'm up here to praise God. Amen. Because I would be bashed if it were not by God and his grace. All right, next week we're going to continue in Romans chapter 12. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the day. Thank you for your mercy. Father, we ask for your blessings today. We ask for your mighty work to be done, to be demonstrated, Father, and we all fall to our knees and just in a quake of fear and respect and reverence and by your holy power, we just see the scope of it. Father, we praise you today. We thank you, Lord, for the ones who will be here today to hear your words. In Jesus' name, amen.